You've probably read about or at least heard of this so-called teen takeover in downtown Chicago recently. Hordes of unruly kids destroyed property and even attacked people. What would you have done if you'd gotten caught up in something like that? Today's case is about teens who went down a horribly evil path. And our guest is going to teach us how to react, what to do with our fear if we find ourselves in a potentially violent situation. And that's why I'm so glad that you've joined me today for this episode of The Unlovely Truth. I'm your host, private investigator Lori Morrison. Let's investigate another story from the world of true crime, and then we'll see what spiritual and safety takeaways we can find there. I believe that it is every Christian's calling to be a different kind of PI, a person of impact. So stick around because we'll talk about a practical way to do just that. This is season four, episode 17. Our book this week is Deadly Secrets, and our guest is fear management expert, Tony Blauer. He has incredible information to share with us. I'm so excited for you to hear from him. But first, let's get to this week's case. You never really know what's going on inside someone else's mind. On the surface, David Anderson and Alex Berenyi sounded like regular teenagers. The friends from Bellevue, Washington, hung out at a local Denny's with a group of underachievers going through a goth phase. David did attend church with his family, and Alex was a talented artist. But each was missing something, a conscience. Kimberly Wilson was one of the Denny's crowd. She was in a rebellious phase and liked being with others who had no interest in conforming to what society wanted them to be. But she would start to come out of it when she joined the volunteer organization AmeriCorps after she graduated. Kim and David had been friends since they were kids and had even dated as young teens. She thought Alex was creepy, but put up with him because he was David's friend. Someone having a very close friend who makes you really, really uncomfortable is a red flag. I know we don't want to admit that, but it really is. So that's probably the first one that we'll see in our evaluation of this week's case. Now, for his part, Alex put up with Kim because she was David's friend, and he would do absolutely anything for David. David was really his only friend, and the thought of losing time with David to Kim was nearly unbearable. Now, teens form tight bonds. I get that. But Alex's fanatical devotion to David was another red flag that it seemed like at the time people missed. It just never occurred to Kim that she needed to be afraid of either Alex or David. Maybe if she had been, this story could have had a different ending. Kim and David grew apart like teenage friends do as she began to get her life together and his kept falling apart. Kim didn't know that David was telling just about anyone who would listen that he planned to commit a murder before he turned 18. His thinking was, as a juvenile, he could only be locked up until he turned 21. He was very, very wrong about that. David told people how he would do it. And he only left out the who. He and Kim broke up and she didn't realize how upset he was that he didn't get what he had wanted from her first. He complained bitterly that she just must not be into guys. He even said aloud to people that he wanted to kill her. No one took him seriously, but they should have. This is a giant red flag waving right in people's faces. You can't just write off that type of behavior as kids being kids. In early January of 1997, just as she was about to leave to rejoin her AmeriCorps group, 
Kim's body was found in a heavily wooded park. A checkbook was found with her body, and when authorities visited the address on it to hopefully be able to notify her family, they found that everyone in her family had been murdered as well. Her mother, her father, and her younger sister had all been beaten and stabbed like Kim had been. As news of the murder spread, the Denny's crowd wondered if David, their unofficial leader, knew what had happened since he and Kim had once been really close. Two of David's ex-girlfriends came forward to authorities, and they had very similar stories of how David had told them he was planning to murder someone before he was legally an adult. Police did talk to David and Alex, but they didn't consider them suspects at first. Each had an alibi, but it's pretty thin evidence when your alibi is potentially your co-conspirator. That should have been a red flag to investigators, and hopefully it was. Then another teen in this group eventually came forward, and he told police that David had shared his plan to kill with him as well. And David even went so far as to say that Kim and her family were on his list. Okay, again, red flags flying everywhere. So not only is he planning on killing somebody, he's decided on somebody specific, and he has an entire list. The young man didn't believe him, but again, well-adjusted and emotionally healthy people just do not say things like that. One person did believe David, his best friend Alex. But instead of warning anyone, Alex wanted to join in. Not surprisingly, teenage killers don't tend to plan their crimes very well. And David and Alex eventually got caught. They were arrested, tried, and convicted of the murders of Kim and her family. There were plenty of reasons for people to be afraid of David and Alex. Our guest today is going to talk about using that kind of fear as fuel, using it to keep yourself as safe as you possibly can. All of my guests have shared amazing information, and I love it when you share those episodes with your friends. Today's guest, though, has information that every single person on the planet can benefit from. So I'm going to do something I don't usually do. I'm going to ask you to share this episode with three of your friends. You can use the share button or send them the link, and I'll put that in the show notes to make it super easy for you. You can become a different kind of PI, a person of impact, by sharing it with others so that other people can get benefits as well. Comment on one of my social media posts, hashtag I shared with three to let me know that you've done that. Right now, we're going to jump into my fascinating conversation with fear expert, Tony Blower. Tony, I want to thank you so much for joining us. I know you're a very, very busy guy, and I'm excited to hear all the information you're going to share with us today. I'm excited to be here. What a cool concept and cool show and your background and your audience. I'm excited to share whatever I can. When I was looking at your website and just checking out all the different things that you offered, what really struck me as being so very valuable is that it's more than what you would typically think of to me in self-defense. You're also talking about mindset. You're talking about self-development. And you have developed the world's first behaviorally-based personal defense system. I want people to learn what that's all about because I think it is very unique. You know, it's not just the physical moves. So tell me what your typical training might be like. Well, it varies, but let's start first with what does it mean to call something behaviorally based? 
when you look at most martial arts systems, like if I said to you, hey, describe, you know, the karate class you took when you were in high school. You go, well, I didn't like it. I was in a gi. I was standing there. I was wearing pajamas. I was doing these kicks. And then I'm not trying to make fun because I've been a lifelong martial artist. I've been a martial artist for 50 years. And the traditional approach to martial arts, which is learning a series of moves, kicks, punches, blocks, how to get up a choke, et cetera, et cetera, that never worked in a real self-defense confrontation. And I noticed that at a young age. It might sound like a grandiose comment, but if you look at real violence, if you just go on the internet and Google real violence, you don't see Taekwondo, boxing, MMA, kickboxing, jiu-jitsu, solving the problem of violence. Now, this is important for your audience, especially anyone who might be thinking they should take a self-defense class one day or learn more about it. When I describe real violence, I'm talking about the fear we experience when we sense imminent danger. Every victim of violence who lived to tell the tale said they had a bad feeling before the attack. This is left out of all conventional training. Most conventional training says, okay, stand like this. Here's how you do a punch. Here's how you do a kick. Okay, everyone on the ground. Let's say you get up a choke. Nobody's talking about the scenario. You're out with your family, husband, wife, kids. You're at the ATM. You're filling up your car with gas. So like somebody's walking out of the shadows. Our heart sinks. We hold our breath. But we start getting butterflies in our stomach. Just as a background, my insights into the the psychodynamics of managing violence garnered so much attention that I teach and consult all over the world for for companies, for entrepreneurs. And it's not just the self-defense. This led to this, this insight of how do we manage fear, whether it's, you know, raising a family, getting married, fails. But it came from this idea that the scariest event in our lives, as scary as a financial problem could be, a health problem could be, truly the, the most scary thing is sudden violence. In sudden violence, you don't even have time to dial 911. If you have a toothache, you have time to dial the dentist, right? <laughs> you have time to go, hey, look, I should have called you last week, but it's gotten worse. And that's what we do with everything, right? Oh, yeah. But this is the danger and power of fear. And that became the cornerstone or almost bedrock of everything we do. If we can't manage our fear, we can't manage the fight. And the fight is whatever your confrontation is. I, I happen to, because of my fascination with self-defense and my passion for it, and just for the record, I abhor violence. And it's why I was so invested in it. I, I grew up having fear dominate my mind so I could never hit that flow state in any sport. Fear affected me as a martial artist if I was sparring or going to a tournament. It wasn't until years later when I started teaching professionally that I realized other people suffered the same, but they just didn't know how to talk about it. I talk all over the world now and I tell people like, who here talks about fear? Like most people don't. When we talk about fear, it's very type A, like I'm not afraid of anything. Or, you know, if I feel fear, it's like this macho, even if you're female, it's a macho thing to talk about fear. And nobody sees the idea of fear as fuel, that if you change your relationship with fear, you can change your mind. If you can change your mind, you can change your life. And most people don't recognize that it's fear, the noxious effect of fear, the unconscious, again, this domination of energy in your mind, that fear creates doubt, doubt creates hesitation, hesitation creates procrastination. And everything leading up to there was controlled by 
overwhelming fear and allowing fear to dictate what we do next. When I started creating my own approach to self-defense and calling it behaviorally based, what I meant by that is what's the behavior of the threats around me and how is that influencing my behavior? What is optimal behavior? I should front kick here or I should palm strike here or I should run here because the mind navigates the body. And that was an insight I had at a, at a young age that we don't do things without our self-talk. Our self-talk is don't say anything, hide, hold your breath. We don't want the bad guy to hear us. The self-talk is run out the door, lock the door. The self-talk, but you don't, you know, the, the term muscle memory, everyone uses it, you probably use it, but it doesn't exist in the kinesthetic neurological sense. Muscles don't have the capacity to store memory. The mind has a neural pattern, and then we deploy the neural pattern, the neuron fires, and then we, you've never done the, you know, hold a toothbrush simulate brushing your teeth. I'm doing it now as we talk, folks. Unless we go, I'm going to go brush my teeth now. I'm going to grab my toothbrush. In other words, I'm using this cartoony example of if it was just muscle memory, we might just find ourselves brushing our teeth when we didn't have to because our muscles decided. (laughs) And, And you laugh, but one of my divisions of my company is we train trainers how to teach behaviorally based. And think about substitute to this. Instead of behaviorally based, Maybe it should be called responsible self-defense and spell responsible with response hyphen able. I like that. Are you able to respond? And if you don't understand the neuroscience between threat, fear loop, fear spike, manage fear, and then do something like, why didn't you run? I was so scared. Why didn't you scream? I was so scared. Why didn't you do this? I was so scared. Everyone says it. It's hidden in the open. It's right there. Victims talk about freezing, and that's exactly what you're describing. I think everybody listening can really resonate with what you're talking about. And I don't often quote Mike Tyson. I don't think I ever have quoted him on the podcast. But he once said, fear is your best friend or your worst enemy. And what I'm hearing from you, I think you would wholeheartedly agree with that. Yeah. So, and definitely Tyson's a, a polarizing individual. And I use him a lot of my talks too. It's interesting, especially because of, you know, some of the darker things he's done in his life. Mm-hmm. You know, he, he's not being discussed as a role model. It's, it's interesting that a lot of people don't know this. Mike Tyson used to cry before many of his fights and he would often throw up. Did not know that. Yeah. So, you know, when you see him walking in the ring as a menace, dropping guys much bigger than him, but, you know, his physiology was purging that fear so he could go do what he had to do. To go back to your quote, that's actually a quote of his legendary trainer, Customata. Oh, that's good to know. But, you know, Mike Tyson made it famous. Part of the full quote, because it's quite long, is that that fear can be your best friend or it can be your enemy. That fear can warm your house and cook your food, but uncontrolled, it can burn your house down. It can harm you. And that fear is your friend if you understand how to control fear. I think that's what you do with your training sessions. And I want to talk about, and, and you have so much more going on than this, but you mentioned three skills that you're stressing that not enough of us have. And that's the ability to spot danger avoid danger, and de-escalate dangerous situations. In a really short mini training session here, what is something simple that we can take away from this that'll help us? Great question. So spotting danger is really easy 
if you pay attention. Most people don't pay attention, especially these days, right? I don't care how self-aware you think you are. If I said to you know your audience, how many of you text and drive? Most people would be embarrassed to answer truthfully. And I'm I'm a very coordinated athlete. I teach situational awareness. I work with military law enforcement. I'm one of the only guys that's ever worked in a women's shelter teaching self-defense. If you said, should you text and drive? I will tell you no. If you said, have you ever done it? I will go, yeah, I've done it. I've had almost near accidents going, you know, you guys can't see me because this is audio, but I grabbed my phone to simulate that that quick message that you, you forgot, but it couldn't wait. And next thing you know, the car in front of you breaks early. And I've thrown my phone down in my console going, you're an idiot. What are you doing? Why would you risk an accident over a text message? We do that. We're at the table with our phones. We're worrying about where we're going when we're walking places as opposed to enjoying the walk or the scenery. So how do you spot danger? Well, listen to this stat. I've been studying violence for aggression for 40 plus years now. I've interviewed victims of violence and uh, every single one of them said I had a bad feeling before the attack. Mm. Like if you were in the stock market, and 50% of your investments were successful, you'd be like the most famous guy in Wall Street or gal, right? If you played Major League Baseball and 50% of the time you're up at bat, you got on base, you would get an award at the end of the year. Yep. So think about this. Every victim of violence who lived to tell the tale said they had a bad feeling before the attack. That's 100%. If it was 80 or 90 or 70, it would still be worth it. There's a lot of research on, you know, you've got your second brain and the vagus nerve goes into your stomach. And mm-hmm. you know, yep. We've got a number of self-defense courses. One of them is called Be Your Own Bodyguard. And it's a one-day course that's taught with the simplicity and efficiency of just a, a first aid course. In four hours, you can learn life-saving skills, right? But you're not a paramedic and you're not a doctor. So when you do the Be Your Own Bodyguard course, you're not a black belt and you're not a martial artist, but you're learning life-saving skills really quickly. One of the things we teach people is this. You have a personal GPS in your system. When you're going the wrong way, where you go, man, this, this area doesn't feel right. That's like your GPS saying, hey, make a legal U-turn and <laughs> turn around. You're going the wrong way. When you get a bad feeling that goes like, I'm out on this date and there's something off with this person, but it's probably just me. I'm a little bit nervous. When we start rationalizing our intuition, the first thing, if you want to get safer and spot danger, this is counterintuitive, right? Because the conventional self-defense marketplace says, here's how you spot danger. Bad guys look like this. Bad guys <laughs> hang out here, right? And I've interviewed bad guys. And let me tell you, they look just like all the rest of us. Exactly. And you know, when you think about your background as a private investigator, when you look at how many crimes are committed by the nice person next door, right? Like who would have thought, oh my God, that person was a serial killer or a rapist or a white collar embezzler or whatever. But there's also post-mortem after the event, a lot of people go, you know what? Now that you mentioned that one time this happened and I did have this bad feeling, but you know, it was Billy Bob and you know, he had been my gardener for so long. I trusted him. When somebody's inside our inner circle, our intuition alarm gets skewed. Because I trust you. And I think for women, too, you're brought up a little differently. You know, we're supposed to be sweet. We're supposed to be kind. We're supposed to be kind of the caretaker. We're making everybody feel good. And so we don't want to stand up for ourselves in those situations in case we're wrong and we make someone feel bad. Well, you know what? They'll get over it. They'll get over it. 
And that that has been complicated in the last few years with cancel culture. Like that with everything. Why? Because I'm telling you, your gut, your intuition is your personal radar. Everyone listening here has been betrayed in a relationship, including myself at some point. Everyone listening has been betrayed in a business deal at some point. And when the dust settled and you got over it, you started to think about all of the bad feelings or pre-contact indicators where you go, you know what? Now that makes sense. But we don't act on it because we're romantic at heart. And we want the world to be nice. We want people to be good. It's an interesting thing. So this is when you talk about behaviorally based self-defense. I'm obsessed about making people safer. So the first thing is, how do you spot danger? This is counterintuitive. It's not like, well, the bad guy is going to be wearing a like a black long trench coat and he's going to have like a black hat on. Like, and you're like, oh, that's... And leaving a trail of slime right. as he goes. Yeah. So it's not... It's not at all that. It's, I get a bad feeling. This is counterintuitive, but it's life-saving. Mm-hmm. We have a motto. It's called the true safety model. And it's the overarching, it's the umbrella, and it's the baseline of our system. We stand on this true safety bedrock and that asks, what do I need to do to ensure I survive, that I get home, that I can raise my family, that I can live happily ever after? And I can't be thinking technical. I got to be thinking tactical in what I do. So the bedrock is I stand on true safety and the protection, the metaphoric umbrella over the whole system is true safety. So you're sandwiched between that. If you're looking down and you're like in the weeds, you ask yourself, what's the safest thing I could do right now? If you're at 30,000 foot and you're looking at something from distance and you're going, okay, we're going on this trip or we're, we're going to drive through this crappy part of town here, it's the true safety at the top. And what choose safety means is, it's real simple. It's something that I believe I turned into an art. How do I take scary, complicated things and make it really simple? Like Ernie and Bert from Sesame Street teaching self-defense. Okay, now I've got that picture in my head. There you go. Go ahead. And it it makes you smile. And it's funny because when we teach self-defense, people laugh and have fun. I've literally had women at seminars come up, pinch my cheek and go, I had so much fun at this seminar. You remind me of my grandson. And they go, you know, I've done self-defense seminars in the past, and I always leave there scared and paranoid. And this is the first time I laugh. But it's because we're talking about fear in a fun way. We're talking about danger in a fun way. Not to make fun of it. Right. But in a way that you go, oh, what am I going to do? But this true safety model is this. Let's say, you know, you're talking to somebody and suddenly you get a bad feeling. The safest thing to do would be to find a way to leave and create some disinformation business. You know, let's say you're on a you're on a date and you get some weird feeling about somebody. How do I get out of this restaurant or this dinner? Well, is it a fake phone call? You know, you're here, you're going, oh man, I hope I don't have COVID again, right? And now the person in front of you is like, whoa, like get away from me. Because most opportunistic crimes are just that. They're opportunistic. Like if you're not the one, I'll pick somebody else. Exactly. If if you make it hard to be a victim, they're gonna exactly. move on to someone that looks easier. So to make it hard to be a victim, make it easy for the person to let go of you, mm-hmm. right? Like in terms of how do I devalue myself? And I, I can give you so many examples of students of ours who've used this. What what could have been like this crazy dangerous thing, suddenly the threat was like, I'm out of here. So how do you spot danger? Trust your gut. You have a natural alarm system. So I remember that. You get a bad feeling, 
choose safety. What's the safest thing you can do right now? Move away from that danger, create some space, create some distance. The other thing you asked me was uh, how to improve our situational awareness. Pretend you're a mother. Pretend you're a kidnapper for a day and walk around and drive around thinking, who could I kidnap? Whose purse could I grab? Whose pocket could I pick? It's weird and creepy, but when you're out at Starbucks and you're sitting there and you ordered your drink and you look around and you think, I'm going to be a pickpocket, and then you see some person on their phone with a headset on texting, their purse is open, and they're leaning over and they're looking at like coffee beans on the shelf. It will teach you how predators look for victims. Mm-hmm. And, you know, let's say you're walking home, you're on your walk. Whose house could I walk into? Like, is that door open? Is the backyard open? You're at the gas station and someone left the door open and the purse is on their seat and they're filling up gas with their phone on. And you go, oh, look, they got their keys in their car. I could not only steal their purse, I could steal their car. And when you start doing that, you, in a nano moment, you also realize what you need to do to harden yourself as a target. Don't make those same mistakes. Oh, yeah. I have yet to get burned on surveillance. And it always amazes me that no one is really paying attention to see, am I being followed? Am I seeing the same car? Am I seeing the same person walk by? You know, I've even talked to to some people. Right. And and they didn't realize that I was there to kind of keep an eye on what was going on. That's awesome. The part two of that, which is really interesting, is also once you've done that and you get a little insight. And and folks, when you listen, this is really weird to do. It's like really creepy. You're like, you'll feel dirty, you'll feel, but it's an interesting exercise. But part two of that is then to follow yourself with this awareness and ask yourself, when would I mug me? Mm-hmm. Right? Like you're there on the phone with your purse open putting your groceries in the trunk of the car, not realizing somebody could like hit me, throw me in the trunk of the car and steal the car. They got my groceries and me. I'm in the trunk of the car. Well, let's wrap up with that because I think that stories are incredibly valuable as teaching tools. And that's that's part of why I do the podcast. I do these stories because I think we can draw principles out of them. We can get takeaways. 100%. Give us a quick little story of a student of yours that would be just like me, be just like listeners who right. don't have a bunch of physical skills or maybe like me, very small. Someone could just pin my arms to my side and then it doesn't matter what punches I know. Right. That's but tell us about someone who took one of your courses and it, it changed their lives for the better in this area of fear. Absolutely. I love this stuff so much and I love empowering people and making people confident. I have a podcast called the No Fear Podcast, spelled K-N-O-W getting to know fear. And uh, Jen attended our Be Your Own Bodyguard course. So she did a one-day course, and in it, we taught this devalue, de-escalation system. And the devalue concept is understanding this. You need to remember this. Bad guys, predators, only want one of three things, property, body, or life. There are no other things somebody could want. Something that you own, a piece of property, something about you, your body, or your life. What's cool is it's a super short list. What sucks is it's a super short list. So, you know, someone says, get in the car. You go, okay, they don't want any of my property. This really sucks. This list has gone to two. I'm either going to get tortured, raped, attacked, something, or and or I'm going to get murdered. Yeah, like this pro list. tip, don't get in the car. Don't get in the car, right? And never go to a secondary crime scene. This is a true story. Jen takes my course 
and she's driving home, I think to Reno or Fresno or something. The course was in Las Vegas. She stops to get gas and she's standing there at the pump and it's kind of spooky. Like, why didn't I fill up earlier? It's nighttime in the middle, like some in the desert somewhere, one of those like roadside highway stops. And out of the shadows comes a small group of men and her heart, like, oh my God, I'm alone. Purse, car, wallet, me. Are they going to just mug me? They're going to steal my car. Are they going to kidnap me, rape me, murder me? And she grabs her phone and she pretends to call her credit card company. She starts screaming and she's watching them slowly move towards her. She sees it and her heart drops, right? Now she just finished the seminar. So her mind speed was really quick. And we did an exercise on devalue and de-escalation using choice speech. We have a whole formula for that. But this is what she does. Imagine you're in the shadows going, hey, there's somebody. Let's go. She gets on the phone and she says, I need to speak to your manager now. My credit card isn't working. I have no cash and I've run out of gas. Oh, I love Jen. Don't even know her. Love her. But, but what she did is she quickly hit the big three. If they wanted property, she has no money. She has no credit cards. If they wanted her, they don't have an escape route or escape mm-hmm. vehicle. If they wanted her car, she has no gas. Plus, she's on the phone with somebody. And she's on the they phone with somebody. Her. And she's also not going, hey, listen, you know, she like she was screaming. That type of big energy is intimidating because the bad guys don't also don't want to get caught. Mm-hmm. So now you're loud. I don't give a right. Like you put a manager on, you better put some money in my credit. I have no money. I have no gas. I'm stranded here. I've run out of gas. And she's watching at her peripheral vision as she's screaming. And they stop walking and then they just kind of recede back into the showers. She, the next day, emailed me and called me, you saved my life last night. And I'm like, I wasn't there. That was amazing what you did. Yes, that is Um, amazing. I love it. The exercise that we had everyone do at the session she was at was an ATM exercise where you're standing at the ATM and you sense that there's somebody watching you that's watching you take money out. And you know, bad guys only want property bought in your life. But because they're at an ATM, like all things point to, they want my money. And so what you do is you hit cancel on the machine. Imagine you're standing behind me 10 feet away, getting ready to mug me. You're waiting for me to take the money out, correct? Mm -hmm. That's why, right? So I turn around, my radar says, I got a bad feeling. My bureau bodyguards, Tony Blower Spear system says, choose safety. What is the safest thing I can do is devalue myself. I hit cancel. And then I stand there in front of the machine. I then smash the machine like a maniac, like somebody who needs therapy. I smash the machine. I scream. I cannot believe you emptied my account. Now you're talking about your boyfriend, your girlfriend, your spouse, whatever. Now you're this crazy person with no money. And you leave. We would do scenarios with this. We did this at this event where I had like, 50 people at the seminar and we were inside of a warehouse that had adjacent building or adjacent to it and i had everybody like they were bang on the wall to get a motive so there's 25 groups of two all doing this scenario somebody called the cops from a business next door the cops show up and are watching this i walk over and see them and go, yeah business next door said they thought there might be a problem they heard a lot of people screaming about money and, and this is everything okay here they go, yeah it's a self-defense class 
Does everyone listening understand how potent and powerful that is? That somebody next door went, wow, somebody's getting mugged next door. What the hell's going on here? I'm calling the cops. So she had done that exercise and applied the principles to the, because we didn't do gas stations. What we do in behaviorally based self-defense, yes, we do teach some physical moves that are based on kinesiology. The moves aren't, am I a black belt there? No. If you can move as a human, like if you can put on your seatbelt, you can throw an elbow. If you can put your foot up on a chair to tie your shoe, you can knee somebody in the groin, right? So we teach people natural movements, but the most important thing we teach people is how to manage fear and how to think. And you do this online as well. So people don't have to be physically located where you're at. Yeah. So we have a course called EOPS, The Essentials of Personal Safety. It's a two-hour online. So it's a safe introduction where you might go, this sounds too good to be true, but you can like do this like very economically in the comfort of your home and go, I want more. You can contact us and my team will send somebody. We've done stuff for families, for teams, for corporations, martial arts schools, because our approach is very, very different and, it, and it's effective. Think about it. This is, I give you a toolbox for Christmas. You got a hammer and a wrench and a screwdriver, and I teach you, here's how you hammer, but you don't know anything about when you should hammer or what you should hammer. In other words, you can use the tool, but you don't know how to build a shelf or fix a frame. And so what we're doing is we're teaching you context. We're teaching you like how to think like an architect so that you understand how to use the tools and when to use the tools, where the conventional approach is, here's how you use the tools. That is something that really attracted me to your particular programs because we let fear hold us back so many times. And I want everybody that's listening to know that they can harness that, they can flip it to be a positive, and they can have an impact on their own safety, their families, their communities. And that's just so exciting to me. So if you go to the show notes, There'll be links. You'll be able to find all of this. I really, really encourage everybody to check it out. And I want to thank you so much for our little mini tutorials and just for sharing everything that you did today, Tony. You're welcome. This was great. This was fun. And, and you know, I, I love what you're doing. I'm going to tell my wife about it because she's a big fan of the TV show Murders in the Building. Ah, yes. Is that the name of it? Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Fun show. I love it too. But just that whole idea of a, like a show about talking about true crime. And, and I very often have come home and watched my wife watching shows about serial killers going, hmm, maybe I should be sleeping in a separate room and with the door locked. My husband says that occasionally as well. Thank you again for your time. It has been so, so valuable. You're welcome. Great to meet you. You too. The Bible passage I want us to dive into this week is from 2 Timothy Chapter 1, verses 7 and 8. And this is from the New Living Translation. For God has not given us a spirit of fear and timidity, but of power, love, and self-discipline. So never be ashamed to tell others about our Lord. And don't be ashamed of me either, even though I'm in prison for him. With the strength God gives you, be ready to suffer with me for the sake of the good news. Ministering to people is tough. I get that. Evil is real and it takes a heavy toll on us. It's so tempting to shrink back and get very self-protective when we see just how crazy the world can be. And trying to stay safe is important, but so is throwing off the kind of fear that paralyzes us. When we do that, we can love others as God calls us to. When fear gets a hold of you, remember, you can use it as fuel to recognize the needs of others that God has uniquely equipped you to fill. 
If you like this episode, be sure you check out the links in the show notes to some of the earlier ones and help someone begin their journey as a different kind of PI, a person of impact. It also helps spread the word and spread the podcast to new people if you'll subscribe and give me a five-star rating and a nice review. The Unlovely Truth is written and produced by me, Lori Morrison. Music is by Neil Cortex, and the artwork is by Shelby Highland. See you all next time. Thank you for listening to this episode that is part of the Spark Media Network that can now be heard on the Edify app. 